See, how does it go? I refuse to answer this question on the grounds of this. Oh, all right. We just take one out and... You want me to start? You want to start? <laughs> Often... Is this on? Often we read... Critics of AA cite the poor effectiveness of our program as compared to the early years. If we concede their point, what do you feel is the single greatest challenge hurdle that caused this and what can be done about it? Well, I think it was um, bringing in alcoholics that were under 49. I mean, when you're just about to die, there's a bigger odds that you'll stick around. (laughs) And we didn't have treatment centers to plant a lot of um, different thinking in people's minds so that there are ideas, well, there's this idea and that idea and this idea, and then I come to AA, and then my sponsor's telling me this, and yes, I, that's true, but I have all these other thoughts that I pre-got indoctrinated with, which um, wasn't going on. I mean, you just arrived and got a sponsor, and we're right into God right out of the get-go. So I would say those are two, and Jer, can you think of some more that are... I think your first point, uh, I think the alcoholics that they approached initially that came to AA were really, really as bottom of the barrel as you can get for the most part, and they were dead serious about it. There was no no hope that there was any other solution, and today we have psychiatrists who tell people that they can help their alcoholism. We have all kinds of things, but at the, in the days that Alcoholics Anonymous started, I think those, those people were pretty silent because nobody, nobody had ever had the solution for the alcoholic. They had tried asylums, they had tried jails, they had tried everything they could, and nothing worked. And there was dead seriousness about it. It was viewed as a miracle in those days. It ha- we, we get so many people sober today that it's still just as much a miracle as it ever was. It's just that we have so many of them. So we get kind of contemptuous of the whole thing. Yeah, and as Clancy said, we, you know, we also get alcoholics not of our type. That's <laughs> uh, not a joke. It is that there are other situations where um, people get court-ordered here, and there's just a whole variety. So I, it's awful hard to tell how much less successful... I, I think people like to just talk about that. I don't like to think about it. I say, I, there's absolutely, you take these steps, you will have uh, the promises come true. End of story. How do you, when do you change sponsors? In my experience, is frequently, 
and when they tell you to do something you don't want to do. That's uh, <laughs> isn't, isn't this an honest program? I yeah. think it is. I change them every 42 years whether I need to or not. I change them when they die, and I've had several die. Uh, but seriously, I always tell people that I sponsor that I'm easily hired and easily fired. Uh, I think there's a, I think there's a great deal of advantage to staying with one sponsor. I think that that you you get the the philosophy. If you get a good pick, you need to find someone you, you really may not like them very much, but if they look like they're working the program, Alcoholics Anonymous, and you go, you, that's who you ought to get. You don't want to get somebody you identify with. The guys you identify with drink Jim Bean on Saturday night. Uh, so get somebody you don't identify with but who has a kind of life that you kind of think might be possible for you. And when you change, when do you change? I, I think you have to uh, listen to your heart. You have to decide whether or not you're going in the right direction with this person or not and whether the two of you are meshing uh, uh, spiritually or otherwise? Well, when I think back, the um, the sponsor was the guy that came to your house to get you. Uh, you didn't select. It was pre-selected by whoever got that phone call to come over and get you. And when I look back on it, I think that made it a lot easier on new people because I can't imagine what it's like to pick a sponsor. This is just me. It would be like picking parents. You know, okay, I want to make sure I get good parents and, and all of that. So I advanced this idea years ago. It was voted down unanimously, but I'll continue to throw it out. And that is, <laughs> we have a bowl in the middle of the home group, and all the names of the sponsors are in there. And the new guy comes in, and we go, okay, it's time for Jerry to get a sponsor. <laughs> Or Harry to get a sponsor. All right, come on up, Jerry. <laughs> and it kind of looks like God chose it, and uh, so. But that, that it's never going to work. <laughs> oh, my turn. You're up. <laughs> Sandy and Jerry, what is your current resentment? Boy, that's um. No, it's like um, I don't keep them very long. There's something that is, if I don't get rid of it that day, there's something wrong. I mean, why keep it beyond one day? And so when I think about this, um, you know, I, I, I just wish I was further awakened. But that's not like a resentment, but it is um, the biggest thing. I just believe that, that I get rid of it before I go to bed. I don't need it. I think I remember it. Uh, okay. I don't know whether it, is this a note to me or is this a... <laughs> the, uh, I don't... Uh, I can't think of any. I'm uncomfortable with some things. I've got uh, leukemia. I've had prostate cancer. 
I've got a little heart problem. I had a stroke two weeks ago. Uh, I dislike failing health. I resist aging. Don't want to age. But I know absolutely it's inevitable, and any time I spend with it, and and not very long ago I was thinking about these problems that I've had, and I decided, and I've been true to this, that I'm not going to spend one more day worrying about, I'm not going to let my health ruin one more day. I'm going to enjoy the damn day, and if my health takes it out, that's just the way it's going to be, but I'm not going to spend any time with it. And I think that the purpose of the ninth step, eighth and ninth step, is to get your life free of resentment. You ought to be able to go anywhere, anytime, and sit down next to anybody and be reasonably comfortable. You don't have to like them, but you don't want to be where you feel like you've got to avoid them or you're going to be uncomfortable sitting next to them. And when you do that, your life really gets pretty free. Thank you. Yeah. On, on resentments, if I can just add, um, just by way of example, let's suppose that you're dealing with this resentment. Your wife just ran away with your best friend. Now, that's a pretty good resentment. And you are <laughs> furious. You're absolutely furious. You, your, your life is just absolutely turned inside out. So the question is, just hypothetically, Can you imagine five years from now being completely over it and forgiving both of them? Can you imagine that? If you can, why wait? You've already decided to let them off the hook. It's just when. And the reason we don't let them off the hook early is that we've decided as punishment we will suffer for roughly two and a half years and then we'll let them off the hook. Two and a half years? (laughs) Whatever. It's a long sentence. (laughs) Yeah. This is related. Uh, Sandy and Jerry, uh, could you share your thoughts about forgiveness specifically pending with fourth step resentments dealing with the loss of a loved one Due to a homicide, a child or a parent, etc. To be honest with you, that hasn't happened to me. So what I'm talking about is theory. I, I don't know how to, to answer that. I, do, I can say this. There's two or three things that I think. I think acceptance. I think surrender. And I think forgiveness are gifts from this power. I don't know how you get a guy to surrender. I don't know how you make a person accept where they are. And I don't know how you can get anyone to forgive anyone. The only thing I know about forgiveness is that if I look at my part in the deal and I recognize that they're just as fallible as I am, I've made mistakes, they've made mistakes. After I've done my fourth step and seen what I've done to my life and to the lives of others, that's a good place for me to think about forgiving Someone else. Now, I don't know what went on with the guy that killed this person. I don't know. have any idea. Never, I've never done that. And I, I, I don't know whether they're sick. I think they must be very sick. Uh, and, you know, we got a prayer that we say for a sick person. 
in the fourth step. Uh, so I, I can't answer that. I think you just got to look at it and recognize that this person was not themselves, or was if they were themselves, it was a very sick person, and pray, just pray for that forgiveness is all I know. I'll tell you this. In uh, 06, the single greatest event in the world, as far as I was concerned, was the Amish forgiveness of the shootings. And that day going over to comfort the family of the killer. I had tears in my eyes when I read about that and saw what is humanly possible in the spiritual world. So I'll just throw that up for a role model as uh, a goal. It's, um, in other words, if you answer the question that eventually you're going to forgive them, then what is the, what's the deal? Why not today? You understand what I'm saying? If you, it's ridiculous to go, yeah, eventually I am going to totally forgive him and let him off the hook. But for now, I'm going to stay miserable and out of touch with my higher power because I think that's really the best thing I could do. that would fall in the category, and Bill uses this word a lot in the big book, stupid. (laughs) That would be stupid. And if you decide you're never going to forgive them, that's a lot like being a victim. If you're going to be a victim, you really have to decide, I'm never going to have a good day. I'm always going to be ruined I can't, can't recover. I'm always going to be a cripple. And you're certainly not going to have any fun in this life. So you've got some choices to make. If you want to be a victim, if you want to carry a resentment forever, you, you know, it's like holding a rattlesnake. He's yours. And uh, you can hold him as tight as you want to. Uh, I don't know why that reminds, but um, I was with, uh, I was at a convention somewhere, and there were some young women were talking, and I overheard them, and one of them said to the other, I've never been so mortified in my life. And I just hadn't heard that sentence in a while. I think that she may have been talking about her wedding and something happened. And Polly Pistol was there, who's one of our great women speakers. So just as... For the heck of it, later, I went up to her and I said, Polly, when's the last time you were humiliated? And she went, wow. I think it was uh, 1978. I said, nothing has happened to you since 1978 to cause you to be humiliated? She says, I just don't do humiliation. (laughs) That's the point. It's not... What happens, it's the reaction to it. That's where the freedom is. You can't control the event. You can control the reaction to it. Your turn to draw one, I think. I'm going to draw a white one. We've been playing on the yellow ones a lot. Okay. (laughs) Sandy mentioned that last three years were... uh, 
filled with spectacular growth and uh, relation, revelations, I guess it is. Any particular catalyst for this? Oh, okay. Um, it's hard to explain, but I think it had to do with an increased level of seeking. In other words, I just said, I really want to see how far this can go. And um, so I started doing a lot of outside reading. I started going, where are all the teachers in the world? What is possible? And it was as if I took and opened up my horizon to this. And um, it's just blown my mind, the new perspectives that have come in and insights and whatever you want to call it. And I just feel that these three years have been... um, I, I just walk around amazed, <laughs> you know, almost on a daily basis at how simple everything is. And I realize that um, the reason it's simple is that I'm not complicating it, that it always was simple. And um, that I was, I'll talk about it tomorrow, that, but that I was um, playing a joke on myself to complicate everything. Anyway, that's it. You're well, that wrong. was for me, so you've got to draw one that no, you've been oh. I'm not going to draw it low in. Uh. Watch this. Jerry. <laughs> I didn't think okay. he's that smart. Uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Do you ever get to the place where you just know that you can stay sober forever? Okay. Now, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to give you an answer. Yes. But I have to tell you why. And that is because I stay sober today. And it's today forever. There's never anything other than today. There's no future. There's just my story about the future. And there's no real past. There's just my story about the past. In other words, if I'm sitting here just having a wonderful time and then somebody says, geez, have you thought about your future? How do you think about your future? Did you ever think about that? And you said, geez, I guess I will think about it. So you go back to your room and you imagine some future. Let's see, this shit could happen. And that could happen. And that could happen. Oh, man, I'm in deep trouble. Where did that come from? I went back to my room, made up a terrible story, and now I feel awful. But don't go walking out of here misinterpreting that, saying, oh, yeah, you can stay sober forever. It has to be understood that it is just one day at a time, which means forever. I don't know. You reach a point, I reach a point, or I have reached a point. Uh, When I'm around people who drink, I'm very grateful. I am so grateful that I don't have to do that. 
it just I can't imagine in my own mind when I would get to a place where that would be attractive to me again. I, I just don't want to do it. Uh, nothing about it rings true to me. Now, will that be, as, as you just heard, will that last forever? I don't have any idea. But that's the way it is to, with me today. It's your draw. Is it? <laughs> Did I just get faith down? <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I feel like a witness, and I'm slowly being. <laughs> I'll be sliding back to my seat in a minute. I've heard that AEA is not a religious program. What is the difference between religious and spiritual? Well, the most obvious difference is that religions have a very clear definition of the higher power. I mean, that is the landmark characteristic of almost all religions is that you come there and they, and they say, do you want to hear about God and who he is and the history and the miracles and, and all of that? But you could be in a religion and still be spiritual. So, in other words, there's an element of spirituality in all religions. But a purely spiritual program like AA lays out a group of spiritual principles which will cause a spiritual experience. The experience itself creates the understanding of the higher power. So you end up with, with the similar activity but in a non-secular fashion. <laughs> or words to that effect. Oh. <laughs> All the religions that I know about have a, uh, an element of exclusiveness or inclusion. Mm. You, if you want to be a part of my group, here is what you need to believe or assert. And once you do that, you're in. If you don't do that, you better not talk about it or you're out, sort of. Not that they exclude you physically or anything, but to be, to fold in, you, you really need to be kind of a, a part. And, and that's that may be a large part of the trouble in the world today, that idea that we have the way. And I'm not talking about all churches. Some churches are very liberal in their thoughts about other, other religions. But even those churches have certain tenets that they think are very important and that people that belong to their church subscribe to. That's, that's what I, I think. You know, I read it one time, and C.S. Lewis wrote... A, uh, a book called The Wormwood Papers. Mm -hmm. And in there, the little devil reports that the big devil were in a lot of trouble. Man has just found the truth. And the big devil says, don't worry about it. We're going to help him organize it. <laughs> and uh, that's, that's what I think religions have turned out to be. That's wonderful. Which is why Bill 
uh, cautioned us to never say AA is the only way to get sober. Right. It's the very same thing. He said if there's other things that work, we ought to applaud them, support them, and can say wonderful. None of them have showed up yet, but uh, we'd never want to go around saying AA is the only answer to alcoholism. Well, this is a lot like the first one you answered. Did you ever get to where you never want to drink? When do you know when you have, parentheses, broken through to the other side, close parent, and got the program and highly doubt that you will never use again? When do you get there? Um, it's just, it's like saying how long is a string? <laughs> Everybody has got to measure their own string on here. The... I don't know. I don't know when I got there. I I don't even know the day I quit craving a drink. I just know that, like the book says, one day I woke up and realized that for a little while I hadn't wanted to drink. I'd driven by liquor stores and not thought about going in. And that came to me not in a flash of lightning or anything. It just happened one day. It just happened, as the book says. We didn't think about giving up the drink. We just, one day it just kind of went away. And I think this is a lot like that. When you break through, you know, we're not, we're not, we have to take action. But this is more a program of acceptance. And acceptance is kind of a, an inertia. I mean, there's not a lot of inertia to, to acceptance. You just, you're there. You just suddenly soaks in that here I am. And here the world is, and I'm, I'm okay. I'm where I ought to be. I'm reminded of the um, section in the big book where it says, we have not even sworn off. Yeah. We feel as though we've been placed in a position of neutrality. It suddenly is not even an issue. And that is Freedom. Sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly. <laughs> Who knows when it's going to happen, but one of the things to do is to not be demanding that it happen right away or it'll never happen. So we just accept the fact that it hasn't happened yet and move on enjoying life until it does happen. And I think one, one important thing for me was to give up the idea that I am being deprived of something. Yeah, that I'm giving up something. That night I had that experience where I got the thought, ain't you got it tough, cowboy? That was the night that I broke through. That was the night I felt, I, I ceased to feel like I'm a martyr, that I've been forced into something that I don't want to, why me, Lord, why me? That was the night I said, thank you, Lord. Thank you for setting me free. That's all good as answers I can give you. That's great. Who? Me? You. <laughs> oh, Sandy, tell us about Lenny. Wow. That brings tears to my eyes. Okay, I have five minutes. Um, Lenny was a street person in Washington, D.C., who um, came from West Virginia and was very disarming to know. 
there was just that aura of is he sane or not sane and um, you know he looked around and he was very strong and <laughs> sort of redheaded Irish guy but he desperately wanted to stay sober so he would be at the meetings and when I first met him I was very put off by him because he frightened me and so I just would go God why is that guy at the meeting he's making me nervous and he's up and down he couldn't sit still he's over here he's over there but as I listened to him talk he had a his higher power was a squirrel and um he thought that squirrels were great higher power because they knew all about nuts, and he was a nut. And so, kids got logic. <laughs> yeah. And so then he'd share what the squirrel told him. And I found myself listening to the advice that he had gotten from the squirrel <laughs> with great interest. And so did everybody else. Um, I can remember when he had about four years sobriety, there was a United States senator who came to the Saturday morning meetings, and I wish I had a camera. And this a senator was Harvard graduate, Harvard Law School, clerk for a Supreme Court justice, no slouch. And I'm looking out in the parking lot, and Lenny is explaining to him how you talk to the squirrels. <laughs> and he is listening with great interest. It was just the, um, it was the classic open-mindedness that we find in AA. But the, so one day we had a snowstorm. The snow was rapidly melting and Lenny wanted to ride back to Georgetown. So I'm driving with Lenny and, um, I decided to make some conversation. Never having lived on the street myself, I say, wow, Lenny, you must be glad that this snow is melting. And he said, oh, yeah, that's okay, but I really prayed for it. And I immediately made a snap judgment that this man is not too bright to live in the streets and pray for snow. So teasing him on, I said, Lenny, why in God's name would you pray for snow? And he said, um, well, when I was a little boy in West Virginia going to school, and then it would snow at night, and we'd wake up, and there was so much snow that have to cancel school. And it was the happiest day. And he said, I think kids are probably like that today, so I just wanted to give them a present. And I sat in the car going, now, let's see. Who's the student and who's the <laughs> Who's the teacher? And uh, the hard part of the story is that he couldn't stand if he was in the corner and then people got so all of a sudden he felt trapped there. He'd have to push through. And he pushed through some girls at the club out of this claustrophobia feeling. And they started complaining that Lenny was causing a problem and should ban him from the club and everything. It didn't happen, but... Him just hearing those words, you know, that he had frightened them, really upset him. And then one time when he had a slip, he accidentally cut his sponsor's lip, who was trying to help him with something very minor. His sponsor didn't even care. 
but he remembered that. <clears throat> and he was in and out, and then he disappeared, and nobody knew where he was for a year. And uh, I got a call one time. He's in uh, Catonsville, which was the mental institution over between Washington and Baltimore. So I went over there to see him. And uh, the first day, I, you know, they had him on all the pills and stuff, and it was, but I wonder what he's doing in the nut ward instead of the alcohol place. So later when I went back and I could visit with him alone and everything, I said, Lenny, what are you doing in the mental part? And he said, well, they sent me through the 28 days alcohol program, and then they were sending me back to a halfway house in Washington. But I thought about the fact that if I went back there, I might be in, a, in the club sometime and scare those girls again. And I never know for sure if I might accidentally hurt my sponsor. And I just can't live with that. I am never going to hurt another person in my life. So I ran my head through a plate glass window so they would think I was crazy and keep me here so that I never hurt anybody. Now, those are strange values, but look what he was willing to do to live up to them. Uh, I still cry when I think about Lenny, and I don't, I don't really know what happened to him after he got out of there, but he's one of my great teachers, and thanks for asking about him. Yeah. <laughs> thanks. Yeah. Please comment on a healthy level of selfishness. Keep in mind that you are talking to an alcoholic who, even though he was uh, selfish and self-centered to the extreme, neglected himself physically, spiritually, emotionally, and financially. Why don't you take this one? <laughs> <laughs> That's, that, I don't understand That's the tough. beginning of it. Well, he's saying, I believe, and I could be wrong, but I, I think what he's saying, we, you know, Bill talks in the book, and I think it's in the 12 Steps and 12 Traditions, where he talks about the instincts of the human being. We have a preservation instinct. And in that preservation instinct, there must be a, an element of caring for yourself, of not stepping off a bridge, of not picking up the rattlesnake, of, you know, those kinds of things. And to be, that, to be at least that thoughtful of yourself is, a, is considered by anybody that I know as normal. And to not be interested in that kind of thing is to be considered abnormal uh, and I think we all have to, t to look into self-preservation and to, to caring for ourselves we can't be of service to other people unless we are reasonably careful about taking care of ourselves you just can't ignore your, your well-being and, and be able to perform as a, a functioning human being so I think we all owe ourselves that much concern. I don't know that that's even selfish. I think that's just sort of built into the system, built into us uh, to a form of intuition that we know that we, we have to eat, we have to sleep some, 
we have to uh, not stick our head through plate glass windows. We have to be self-aware enough that we don't harm ourselves so that we can at least be useful to other people. I hope that answers the question. That's what I would say. <laughs> You're up. I just don't think it was being selfish to take care of yourself. Right. So I, that's what I agreed. Do you suggest working the steps over and over? Um, <laughs> well, let's put it this way. If we use the analogy that the steps are like notes on the piano, you probably are going to use them over and over as you play different songs. They become part of how to live. I mean, it's just um, these are the principles that get played now. So you look at a situation and you intuitively play a certain step. Only you don't consciously go number four, you know what I'm saying. But it is, it just becomes built in to um, do these. And when we're disturbed, we know we have made a mistake like hitting off key. You're playing, playing, uh-oh, wrong note. And that's how we know that we made a mistake and we are off principle and then we do whatever it takes to get back in harmony, whether it, uh, we can figure it out ourselves or we have to ask somebody else. That's my shot. I think, too, that uh, when I first came to Alcoholics Anonymous, there were people who said, you know, you only have to do the first nine steps one time. That's all you ever have to do them. And from then on, you're on the maintenance steps, which are 10, 11, and 12. Well, as I read 10... It sends me back through one through nine. Uh, so I don't know whether it makes any difference whether I'm calling it working one through nine or whether I'm working step ten as it's described in the book. The fact is I have to go through my life looking at whether I'm powerless over something, whether I'm uh, my life's unmanageable, whether I, you know, whether God can, can take care of the situation I'm in. I have to inventory and look for self-centeredness if I'm going to stay on the track. So I, I don't know that there's a lot of difference in in that view and the view that, you know, I keep working the steps. I keep applying the principles of Alcoholics Anonymous in my life as best I can on a daily basis. That's what causes me to grow and process life in, in such a way that I, I hopefully mature and grow as a human being and as a spiritual being. So that's what I, what I think about. Was that mine? Uh, yeah, no. I read that. No, you didn't. Did you read that? Yeah, I read that. Did I read that? Yeah. Okay, I read that. Come on, guys. <laughs> <laughs> He's doing such a good job. I like to listen. Oh. Do you think? Yeah, sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> we should go back to the old-time way of not allowing newcomers to participate in a discussion meeting. Well, I've never been in a group where newcomers were not allowed to participate in a discussion meeting. 
Our problem has always been to get newcomers to participate in a discussion meeting, to find out where the hell they are, what they're afraid of, what's going to happen. Uh, I, I don't think for a minute that uh, the newcomer has much to offer except his concern for working the program, uh, raising a question that he may have about what he's going to do in his life, uh, and that sort of thing. He's not going to, not going to, you know, save any souls particularly. But I, I like to have them. I like to have them in the meeting, and I like to have them doing things. So, I guess I would answer the question. I wouldn't go back to saying you can't talk in a meeting. I don't know if that came from my. <clears throat> sharing my beginning <clears throat> when there were mostly speaker meetings and my sponsor wanted me to learn how to listen, which was one of the advantages <clears throat> excuse me, of mainly going to speaker meetings. And then after a certain amount of time had passed when we would ride back in the car and then I'd ask all the questions about what I heard at the speaker meeting and get these answers so that I now had a certain amount, a certain base um, to participate in discussing something at a, a discussion meetings because we didn't have um, has anybody got a problem that that was never a topic at the discussion meetings that I went to you follow what I'm saying which that's entirely different that's really in now who had something happen to you at work today and then it just goes it was always, tonight's topic is the promises. Would you please share your experience on the promises? I don't know if I'd go back to the old thing. I mean, it, it, I'm, I'm happy way everything is. Even when the meeting gets all screwed up, I just go, hey, that's pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> so I wouldn't go back to anything. Go ahead, yeah. Huh? Keep on going. Yeah. yeah. Now you read that one, right? I did. Okay. Anonymity question. What is your opinion on using your last names in an AA meeting? That is not a break of anonymity, if that's what the question is. Does that break anonymity to use your last name at an AA meeting? I do it all the time. But I won't use your last name. I will be very careful to not break your anonymity. And of course, this is at the only place that the program suggests some guidance is at the level of press, radio, and films. And so um, if I go to a high school and they want, you know, somebody to come over there and talk to the high school students about AA, and it's just me and the students, I'm telling them who I am, and I'm in AA, and this is what happened, and so on down, because I'm still not up at the level of press, radio, and films. Or I could just say I'm Sandy, because I just like doing it that way. Um, but I, myself, <laughs> if I know you, you know I'm in AA in about the first 20 minutes uh, because I have found that when I work it into the conversation, it has never hurt me anywhere. I'm talking about all the jobs I've had. 
people come from anywhere, you know, and somebody I've never met before high up in the company. And I said, oh, I got to go. He said, where are you going? I said, I got to go to an AA meeting. I mean, you know, it just, oh, all right. And it, it, it just, that's just the way I am. And because of that, I know I've gotten numerous 12-step calls where complete strangers says, well, could you help my sister? You, you follow what I'm saying? And if he didn't know that I um, was recovered, uh, recovering, recovered, whatever you like, alcoholic, he wouldn't have been able to ask for my help. So those are some of the thoughts. Anonymity. Anonymity. Sort of like, I try to. You heard my talk about my anonymity. I don't have any. and haven't had any for a long time. And I'm much like Sandy as far as not worrying about mine. I did worry about mine in one respect, and Scott invited me to deviate a little tonight if I needed to. Uh, I was a trial lawyer, and uh, I always wondered what would happen if I got a member of Alcoholics Anonymous on the jury panel. And uh, they, when they asked, do you know Mr. Jones? And what, in what connection do you know Mr. Jones? And then they would tell them, well, I saw him at an AA meeting. And uh, I wondered what reaction that that would have for my, you know, my client probably knew it because I didn't hide it from them, but the rest of the jurors didn't. And I, you know, I just, I wondered what the hell would happen. And yeah. one day I had a case with a doctor who was <laughs> supposed to have uh, injured a man in his surgery. And, and the man t- test said that he couldn't look up. He couldn't raise his head up. And uh, we picked a jury and, uh, Nothing was said about me being an AA, or no one said they knew me. Uh, and uh, we went to lunch, and uh, came back after lunch, and the plaintiff, the man who couldn't raise his head, came over and sat down at the counsel table, and I was working on my cross-examination of that guy. And uh, one of the jurors, a large red-headed woman, walked in and plopped down in the jury. She wasn't supposed to be in the jury room. She's supposed to go to the jury room. She was in the jury box. But I wasn't going to go over and tell her because I had the plaintiff sitting right here and I wasn't going to be accused of, you know, messing with the juror. Uh, So I just kept doing my work. And I don't know why I looked up. But I looked up to see her and she went and I looked over at the plaintiff and he went And he looked back down, and she went. <laughs> and he jumped up and ran out of the courtroom. And she came, he came, his lawyer came back in just a few minutes and said, I need to talk to you. We want to try to settle with you. Uh, and we did at a very advantageous level for my client. I, we settled, and we got the paperwork done, and I walked out in the courtroom, and there sat the lady. And she said, you're not much of a lawyer, are you? And I, I said, no, I'm really not. Uh, <laughs> and she said, I won your lawsuit for you. And I said, you sure didn't hurt it any, I'll tell you that for sure. I, I saw what you did. And she said, I just can't imagine why you didn't, why you're not more observant than you are. And I said, what did I miss? 
said, you were standing walking right down in front of the jury there, and I had my bag open just like that. said, I thought I'd seen you at a meeting somewhere. And I had my 24-hour book laying right out there where everybody could see it, and you never even noticed my damn 24-hour book, did you? <laughs> I said, no, ma'am, I didn't. I sure didn't. So she handled it very well, I thought, uh, and I was, I've never been harmed by it being a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous in any way, form, or fashion. If I've missed any opportunity in my life by being a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous, I just don't know about it. And I don't care because I've had a really good life with lots of, lots of good opportunities and lots of nice things happening. Yeah, good, good. I got one more anonymity. Jerry reminded me there are some good stories about anonymity, and uh, I just talked about it so freely, and I was lobbying in Washington for credit unions. I'd be on the banking committees. It was mostly where I was, and a couple of the staff directors of the subcommittees on the Senate side were pretty good friends after over the years. So one day I'm taking this guy to lunch, and um, we're walking down the street, and a U.S. senator who's in AA is on the other side of the street, and he yells, Sandy, get over you go over me, get a big hug and everything, and then he goes on his way. So the guy with me goes, uh-huh, you know, like. <laughs> <laughs> I said, I can't say for real. And he says, I got it, I got it. So then we walk a little further, and there's a big black doorman in front of the um, Willard Hotel, and he yells out, Sandy, get over here! And he ran across the street and <laughs> hugging me and all that. And this guy looked at me and he said, you guys are everywhere. <laughs> and, and I said, Jack, I hate to tell you this, but if people see you walking with me, they're going to assume you're an A. <laughs> Is that okay with you? And he said, yeah, that's fine. I don't, I don't care. So you can see it, it, it gets, and, and one quickie, um, at this trade association I belong to in Madison, Wisconsin, we'd have quarterly meetings. Everybody in the place knew I was in AA. And this vice president one time at the big meeting, you know, a room about like this, people all over the place. I come walking in. He yells from the other side of the room, don't let that guy have a drink. And I watched the reaction, and everybody in that room turned and looked at him, thinking, what a jerk. <laughs> no one looked at me. Now, if I was new, I would have felt everybody was looking at me, and oh, my God. But it just, um, he just looked like a complete jerk, and I felt sorry for him. Yes, sir. Okay. How many people have you encountered who are constitutionally incapable of being honest with themselves, and do you try to work with them despite this? Well, it's hard to tell when you find a person who is constitutionally incapable of being honest with themselves. Uh, usually, people who are concerned about that are not constitutionally incapable of being honest because they have enough 
integrity, internal integrity, to, no, to know I should be concerned about whether I am or am not honest enough. The people that I have encountered uh, I, that I've wondered about are people who seem to just naturally assume that they're perfectly all right and that the things they do in an insane manner are totally logical and real. And I don't know how you deal with this. I don't know how you, how you can ever tell. And, and the answer is, do I work with anybody that way? I work with anybody that wants my help, as long as they will show me that they're trying to do what I believe the program of Alcoholics Anonymous requires. And if they're unwilling to do that, or they think that the, the program requires somewhere else, I think they ought to find another sponsor and try to do it the way they want to do it. But I, I don't draw a line about who I'll work with and who I won't work with. And I certainly don't try to tell who's, you know, incapable of being honest with themselves. My experience is similar. It's, it's, it seems to be a very rare thing. And I think it's impossible to know until after an extended period of time as you are trying to go, well, what is going on here? And... Um, then in talking with other people, you realize that there is a degree of delusion going on, whatever that condition is. <clears throat> and it definitely stands in the way of staying sober or, even if you're sober, of getting happy. I mean, it is an unfortunate situation but I think that even those people uh, have some sense of life improvement by being around us, by just being around us. The energy um, just seems to get absorbed rather than us learning some trick to make it all work or some psychiatric trick. It's, um, so, yeah, you just don't want to give up. Maybe the traditional way come on, sit down, let's go through all the steps again. You just hug them and let's go to lunch and let's talk about, you know, it's a, it's a whole different extension of love. But I, it's not very many. I'm, I'm thinking back, maybe five people I can think of. That, that's about all. I mean, it's... Uh, the way that sentence is read, you'd think that there's, you know, like 30% of the people fit in that category. <laughs> and it's really um, minute. I agree. Right? I, mean, I just don't see him. Uh, I think you read that. Jerry or Sandy. Okay, Jerry. How has <laughs> AA changed for the better or worse since you came in? Um, I'm going to give you my <laughs> he, he wasn't going to let me answer that question <laughs> <laughs> no I'm just going to give you my <laughs> I'm going to not answer it and then Jerry can answer but I'm going to tell you it's gotten much much better because I've gotten much much better <laughs> That's it. I agree with that totally. Uh, I think uh, I think AA has uh, 
it's found ways to uh, apply itself to or to reach people uh, better. Some ways, some ways AA has changed. I do not think for the better. I don't know that AH caused this, but we don't get as many twelve-step calls as we did when I came in. And I personally am known as an alcoholic to my, my doctor, the ministers that I've, I've attended their services and the churches, uh, my office, office uh, my partners, my, the people in my office. I'm pretty well known around the community as a drunk who's working in Alcoholics Anonymous. And if you know somebody that needs help, give me a call. I'd like to help them. And I don't get many calls anymore. We reached that part of, a, of our uh, society where treatment centers were in, involved, and they began to bring us busloads of people with little bands on their arms and their names on them and, and dump them out for a meeting. And, and uh, that sort of, I don't know what happened uh, exactly, but uh, the calls to AA Central, I'm, te- I'm told, are down in Dallas anyway. And uh, I don't know how to get that started again. I don't think that's a particularly good thing because the, the treatment centers in, in our area are few and far between. And we get most of our people today from jails. And that's not the best place because when they walk in the door, they think that this is a part of their punishment. And the first thing I always tell them, every one of them, is we don't have anything to do with your being here. We welcome you. We're glad you're here, but we're not a part of your punishment in any way at all. And the only thing we ask you to do is just use your head a little bit and take advantage of this opportunity to find out, do you have a problem with alcohol? And if you do, let us help you. And that's my opening statement to them. But that's that change for the influx. And, we, and God knows there are just a lot of drunks out there. We're just not getting, getting to reach. Uh, that, that's the, the one negative that I know of uh, about our program. And I don't think that's AA's fault. I think that's society, the way society, society reacts to us. I miss the 12-step calls. I do, too. I mean, that, that's where all the great stories are. I'll, talk, oh, I'll yeah. share. You share a couple. I'll share you. Some, you want to hear some 12-step calls? Yeah. Oh, boy. One time I went with Buck Doyle, who was Northern Virginia's Mr. AA in Northern Virginia. You know, I went to his Saturday night meeting and all of that. And I had about a year. And Buck called me up and he said, I want you to go with me on a 12-step call. You got to go get this guy. So I went, yeah. I remember telling my buddy, I'm going on a 12-step call with Buck Doyle. And, uh, you know, so we go over to this guy's house. As a, he, was probably, he was an Irish guy of about 35 and he is talking up with Buck. Well, I got the, da, 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 you know, and Buck is, I could see he's getting really angry. And the guy's, well, I'm going to do something. And finally, the guy went in the bathroom. Buck came over and he says, this guy is sneaking beer and I can't find it. Now, you start searching the house. I don't know how the hell he's getting away with this, but he's sneaking beer while I'm here. And so we're... we're <laughs> We're talking, and the guy's moving around. He's in the closet. He's out here. He's da 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 da, and all that. And uh, finally, Buck said, "Well, screw it. I'll come back tomorrow." And I remember going home, and I said, "Geez, I was on a twelve-step call with Buck Doyle, and he didn't get the guy sober." I mean, I felt like <laughs> I saw the exception to the entire 
process. And he eventually got him. But I never forget going home and I'm telling all my friends, and the guy's sneaking beer somewhere. We never found him. Never, you know. <laughs> I thought it was. A... Then I went one time to, uh, they, they called up and they said, there's a guy down in his house and his wife is all upset. He's in his den and he keeps shooting his 45. <laughs> and so I'm so dumb, I went. <laughs> And didn't take anybody with me. I said, I'm, I think I'll go down and see this guy. He was an airline pilot. That's why they called me. He was an airline pilot. So I went down, and he's sitting, and he had his suit on. And he, you know, I knocked on the door to his den, and he said, who is it? And I said, I'm from Alcoholics. I'm not. Come on in. So I came in, and he's just sitting there. And um, I said, your wife called and was very upset. I'm fine. I don't know why she was calling. And I said, well, she was upset that you were not feeling right or something wrong with you, and she was very upset. Well, I don't know why she'd feel that. <laughs> I, I can see the bullet holes in the, <laughs> in the ceiling. And I said, well, I was um, looking at the... <laughs> said, there's these bullet holes in your ceiling. She heard... The, the gun going off and there seems to be bullet holes in the ceiling. He says, what's wrong with that? (laughs) And I didn't have an answer. (laughs) My house. It's his house. What do I know? (laughs) And he didn't come. And when I went back and talked to the old timer, I said, Jesus, don't you ever go down there on one of those things. But, I mean, gee, there were some wonderful things. Just I got, a sim- I got a similar call one night from a uh, lady. <laughs> and she said, Al, that was her husband, is crazy. He's absolutely crazy. He's in, the ha- he's in the house. He's waving a gun around. Bring somebody strong with you because we need, I need help. You've got to help me get him out of here. I've got to have some help. So I got my buddy, and we, uh, I told him, I said, this guy's got a gun. He, don't tell him what the hell we're going to run across. He was kind of a tough look, little guy anyway. And I, I said, we just go over there and see what we can do. Um, we should be able to talk to him, and, uh, but I'm not sure what we're going to run across. And so we got there, and we knocked on the door, and this woman came to the door, and she was not excited at all. She's very calm. She's very easy. And I said, where's Al? She said, oh, He's standing on the couch. (laughs) And I said, why? She said, well, he's afraid the vacuum cleaner is going to eat his toes. (laughs) (laughs) They say you're never supposed to make a a 12-step call on a member of the opposite sex. I can tell you that is true. I was at a, in, our, in our group one night, and the little lady there, she was weighed about 75 pounds. She had taken this woman in to give her a place to sleep. The lady had been so sober for maybe a week, and then she got gloriously drunk, threw the little lady out of the house. She couldn't get her out of her apartment. She said she needed some help to, to get her some, where she could get in her apartment. And she couldn't get any women to go with her. And 
So here he comes to save the day. You know, I, I got one of my pigeons, and we went to the house. And we went up a very narrow staircase to the second floor where the bedroom was. And we walked in, and there sat this lady in the middle of bed with a shorty nightgown on, uh, very amorous. She was, uh, she was interested in playing. She liked the idea a lot. And uh, she was not at all antagonistic to us helping her any, any way we could. And, <laughs> but she couldn't walk. She was drunker than a skunk, and she couldn't walk. And so we, we, in our infinite witticism, we decided to take her down the stairs. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> I had this 200-pound woman on my back go, trying to walk down those stairs. And she was giggling and having a lot of fun while we were going down the stairs. And right then I knew the wisdom of never make a 12-step call on a woman. Just don't do it. Don't give a damn if she dies. Just don't go on the <laughs> Threw her in the back of a station wagon and took her to a treatment center, but I was uh, that was I learned a lot that night. I really did. Your time. My turn? Yeah, I think so. I believe in singleness of purpose, but what is your opinion on drugs being mentioned in an alcoholics anonymous meeting or in someone's story? Um, this is me, my own personal opinion. A mention of them in passing is hardly out of line any more than saying, and then I had a suicide attempt, or then I had a whatever. In other words, I'm, I'm an alcoholic, I had a bout with pills, but my main focus is alcohol. I'm here to talk about alcohol, da, 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 da. So it was just a, it's like mentioning a relative or something. It's just in passing. It is the dwelling on that particular thing that um, I think breaks the spirit of singleness of purpose, which is like I was using the magnifying glass to focus to get the maximum heat. You can't spread it out to start two fires at once because there won't be enough heat to start either one. And then it, it isn't like it's a law. It's, it's, it, what it is is once we inform someone, we just go along with it out of courtesy and out of concern for the next newcomer who's coming in, who if he walked in the door and heard 15 minutes about needles in the arm would think he's in the wrong place and might not stay, and so I don't have the right to put his life in jeopardy. So, but a casual mention, I'm just saying, it's just it's in passing, I don't feel is a flagrant violation. Well, I, I think you all heard, know what I think about it. I mentioned it earlier today. So many people come today who don't know what they're addicted to. They've just used everything. They've just used any. If, it, if it's got any kind of up or, or downer or in-betweener, they've tried it, you know, and, and recently probably more than once. And, and so I'm like Sandy. I, I don't object to that. I, I want people who come to Alcoholics Anonymous 
to not try to, I, I, I subscribe to the view that if you come to AA, you ought to come and talk about a program where you are addicted to alcohol. Now, you can go to NA or if you want to split it up or do whatever you want to do, that's fine. You can casually mention, and I think it's even helpful to other newcomers to mention the fact that I use some drugs as well. Uh, but when you start telling me I'm, a, I'm an alcoholic and a drug addict, when you introduce yourself, you excluded yourself from the general population of Alcoholics Anonymous. And, and I'm not an AA cop. I don't go around and tell people they can't come back to meetings for any reason. I had a guy in my group one time who for six months, every time he introduced himself, he said, my name is John, I'm a, a mechanic. He didn't know what the hell he was. And uh, we didn't throw him out either. He was allowed to come to close meetings because he was obviously looking for something. And that's the way I feel about this thing. I think we need to be pretty open in our arms and we let people in here. And then we need to guide them as best we can to make them a part of what we're trying to do here. And if they don't fit, we should help them find a place where they do. The other thing, um, I did a comedy routine one time on Anda. I can't, I can't, Lee probably has it somewhere, but it, it was that you, when you came in, you identified who you were. You know, I'm an alcoholic and a lesbian, and I'm an alcoholic and a Republican, and I'm an alcoholic and a drug addict, and I'm an alcoholic and a... So the, we had a doorman. He was seating people according to the ANDA part of the, of the thing. And then the final guy comes in and says, I'm an alcoholic. Oh, you can sit anywhere you want. Um, my point is, as soon as you say ANDA, whatever comes after, I'm an alcoholic ANDA, without knowing it, you've said to yourself that I require different help than just an alcoholic. My case is slightly different than the just alcoholics. So when you're helping me, please give the modified help to the ANDA. There's no modified help. There's just one answer, and um, I, I just think it has the internal effect, whether you recognize it or not, of separating yourself out for some kind of specialness that isn't here. Sandy Beach, you, you wrote that Oh, a break. Okay. Yeah, great. We'll take a break and throw this one away. No, no. Oh. <laughs> Thanks.